The reading of the Scriptures from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 6. So I invite uh, your reverent attention, but also to hear uh, with faith and joy uh, at the reading of God's Word. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Our uh, passage this morning uh, causes me momentarily to hearken back to an earlier chapter in my life, uh, namely uh, my association uh, with uh, the United States Army, and in particular uh, the uh, ferocity of, uh, of modern warfare. Uh, now, before I lose all the ladies in the congregation, uh, I remind you this is an introduction to an event that's much more ferocious. Uh, but it is, it is, I think, instructive to look at uh, events in military history that speak to just the terrible violence of, uh, of warfare. Uh, remember, in the history of uh, the Army in the Second World War, uh, artillerymen uh, came up with a new way to attack targets uh, by virtue of uh, field artillery. Uh, namely, artillery battalions would be scattered all over the uh, battlefield, and uh, men came up with a way to uh, mass all of their fires upon one target, one point in time. Technical name for it was called time on target. Uh, I've seen firepower demonstrations of, again, that type of mission, time on target. It really kind of takes your breath away. Uh, it's so incredibly staggering as a reminder of the ferocity of modern warfare. Remember in the, uh, the Iraq war, it was a meeting engagement uh, the uh, armored cavalry was uh, advancing to close uh, with uh, Iraqi armor, uh, a violent, violent clash of incredible destruction. There's a simple vignette that reminded me of uh, an Iraqi soldier who stood up before an Abrams tank and he was going to shoot at the tank with his gun. Uh, the American gunner of the tank shot him with a 120 millimeter tank round and his bodily totally vaporized. 
It's really a classic definition of overkill, by the way, shooting someone with a 120 millimeter tank round. Uh, but in the exuberance, again, of prosecuting uh, modern warfare, incredible destructive power and ferocity. But far surpassing modern warfare in its destructiveness uh, is the undiluted ferocity of the coming of Messiah. It's really our text this morning. That's unparalleled in the history of all of warfare if we could combine it all in one point of time. Uh, it has no semblance of the ferocity of Christ coming. Uh, and here he comes victoriously, verses 1 to 2, and he secures uh, the defeat of all opposition to his holy city, verses 4 to 6, in very, very descriptive language uh, that speak to incredible violence. Yes, modern warfare is violent, but there is nothing that compares to the coming of Christ, the coming of Messiah, to rescue his people, to vindicate them, and destroy everything and everyone that gets in his way. Now, we don't think in those terms, but the prophet Isaiah does. Uh, our text uh, is uh, the final judgment of God upon the nation. Uh, the language speaks to extreme violence. Uh, the context is uh, twofold. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 59, we have a description of uh, the great messianic warrior of Christ who will come. Uh, Isaiah 59, in verses 17 to 18. And he put on the righteousness like a breastplate and helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. So he comes zealously to seek revenge uh, against the enemies of his kingdom. Again, the messianic warfare. Uh, the messianic warrior, Isaiah 59. Uh, our text this morning describes the battlefield. Uh, the warrior is mentioned in Isaiah 59. This is the battlefield, Isaiah 63. Uh, it's something that's not new to us in the uh, prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, we find it in uh, the poetry of Messiah that speaks to his coming. Uh, for example, uh, Isaiah chapter 49 uh, in verse 2, uh, Messiah has mouth like a sharp sword, uh, and he has made uh, the quiver of God to be a select arrow. Uh, those are offensive weapons that uh, Christ will execute when he comes, uh, the majesty of Messiah and the violence of the warfare that he will effect upon the enemies of the church and the kingdom of God. Uh, it is an illustration that if you, if you mess with God's people and many cultures and many peoples and nations do, uh, Isaiah 63 is what you will get when he comes. I don't say that in any sense of, uh, of a malice uh, or unkindness, but only a ferocious description of the coming of Messiah uh, to wage total, absolute, unconditional, ferocious warfare uh, against uh, his enemies and the enemies of his people. Uh, if you oppose or reject the offers of peace from the divine warrior, and he does offer peace. His triumphal entry is a picture of a king offering peace. But if you reject that offer of peace, uh, what, what, what you get is warfare. And the description of that warfare is Isaiah 63. Uh, the last uh, 
Second contextual element to support here is the last two chapters uh, detail God's blessing upon his holy city. Uh, the end time Jerusalem, I believe, is the immediate uh, reference. It's really more than the city, it's the inhabitants of the city. Uh, now he comes to avenge the holy city. Uh, Describe for us, again, Isaiah chapter 63 in the first six verses. Uh, but, but beyond modern warfare, we can turn, I think, to gather something of the ferocity of revenge uh, from nature itself. Uh, imagine, uh, if you will, the, uh, the grizzly she-bear that has a couple of cubs and someone who stumbles upon those cubs at the wrong time in the wrong way incredible ferocity uh, of a grizzly bear. Uh, that's what you get when you reject the Savior. Uh, and there's no escape from it. There's no running. There's no hiding. Uh, it's simply at the point of the text. Isaiah describes his warrior, and then he describes the battlefield. Uh, this text, of course, speaks to future judgment, but I want to remind you that... Uh, uh, judgment is uh, something that occurs every day. Uh, one of my favorite verses, John 3.36, uh, is, is a reminder uh, that uh, the one who believes in the Son has life. Expression of the Gospel. You believe in the Son, you have life. In time, life now. But if you reject the Son, John says in John 3.36, the wrath of God abides. He uses the present tense. Wrath is future. I'm I understand that from Isaiah 63. Uh, but John is telling us in the third chapter of the Gospel of John that uh, the wrath of God is present. It abides upon all who reject the Son. It is a present event. It clings to the one who rejects the Savior and will not let him go, barring the great work of the grace of God. Uh, most people don't think in those terms. Uh, John has otherwise. The wrath of God is a present uh, event. It's an illustration of this throughout all of the scriptures. I want to turn to a couple of them as a reminder of the present ferocity of, uh, of the wrath of God. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 is a reminder uh, of a tiny expression and element uh, of the wrath of God against those who uh, reject him. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. He gives it to some and denies it to others. Terrible expression of the ferocity of divine judgment and the grace of God and how utterly dependent upon God's grace we are every day to escape judgment. And that God speaks to his people and discloses the mysteries of the gospel to them and to others he hides it. A reminder, be very careful about rejecting the Son. Expression, as you know, in uh, the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, it's a taunt against idolatry. Uh, the nation has given itself over to idolatry, and so the prophet is commissioned to go to harden their hearts, to stop up their ears and blind their eyes to destroy their spiritual sensory organs that they desperately need to comprehend the gospel and believe it 
the prophet Isaiah is commissioned to go destroy it so they won't believe, so they won't repent, and so he won't save them. How can that be? The ferocity of the judgment of God is a present event for those who engage in idolatry. Again, we think of wrath as being future, but it's more than future. It's present. A terrible reminder of what happens for those who engage in idolatry. The psalmist tells us that if you engage in idolatry, you become like the idols that you serve. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have hearts, but they cannot believe. That there is a present judgment and wrath upon sin. Another reminder is the words of the Apostle Paul, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 3, uh, in verse 14. It says, but their minds were hardened. The children of Israel, their minds were hardened because there's a veil over their hearts and they cannot see the glories of the majesty of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then he gives something of the agent of uh, the hardening uh, in the fourth chapter and fourth verse, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Present judgment. The agent is Satan. But again, it speaks to terrible spiritual ferocity of the judgment of God that has already entered the world. What's the present? But again, our text this morning returned to Isaiah uh, 63 as uh, more about future judgment. What's going to happen at the end and the coming of Messiah? The form of our text is uh, quite unique, question and answers. There's two questions and there's two answers. First, Isaiah asks, who is this who comes from Edom and Bozrah? Uh, Edom, uh, ancient uh, enemies of the children of Israel, Bozrah was the capital. Uh, uh, the one who is coming, his garments are red. From a distance they appear to be majestic. He is described as coming in the greatness of his strength. The question, who is this who comes? Uh, the answer, uh, latter part of the first verse, Isaiah 63. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So it's identified to be Christ. He speaks in righteousness. He is the only one totally qualified to so speak. And he is mighty to save and rescue his people. Again, the immediate context, uh, the holy city and its inhabitants, He's going to come and to rescue them. He is mighty to save. By the way, if you are not a Christian and know not the Savior, only Christ is mighty to save. Nothing and no one else can save you. Only He has the, has the power and the ability and the qualifications uh, to be so described as mighty to save. Mighty to save is our Savior. He will save His people. Uh, only God saves. Uh, in every culture, uh, even in our own, with all of its pluralism, uh, there are many religions that promise to save, but only Messiah is mighty to save. All others are totally disqualified and rejected. Uh, Messiah is the speaker, and he comes to save. How is he going to save? He's going to annihilate the enemies of his kingdom and his people. So the question is who? The answer is Messiah. Uh, Let's transition from the who to why. Why does he come in such a way? And so the question, second question, verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? So play on words here with the word red with the 
nation state Edom, uh, same radicals in the Hebrew language, uh, reminder there's a majestic play on words, uh, that Christ is, uh, his garments are red, and why are they red? And the answer is, uh, uh, he's been treading the winepress, uh, the fierce wrath of God, really the, the, uh, the subject of uh, the rest of the text, uh, the language of judgment, verses 4 to 6. Uh, so we, we have a description of violence. His garments are red. Uh, and a description from violence to revenge. Now, we don't think in terms of revenge. You and I as Christians are commanded not to seek revenge uh, because God revenge. Uh, we, we cannot take the law in our own hands. We cannot go affect revenge as Christians. We are not to return evil for evil. Uh, but those laws don't apply to Christ. He writes that law for us because he is the sole one who is qualified to avenge his people, and this is how he will do it. There are two images here. The first is the wine press. Uh, in the ancient Near East, grapes would be placed in a, a containment structure with two levels. Uh, the grapes would be crushed by trampling. Uh, the juice would flow to a lower level co collected then for the making of wine. And you can imagine if you were the one trampling in the process of time, your garments would become stained in the process. It's a metaphor for total and complete dominion and judgment. Treading the wine press of the fierce wrath of Almighty God. Messiah is going to do that. Uh, we know from uh, from this, uh, uh, in the language of our text, verse 3, uh, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. So it speaks to, again, the ferocity of spiritual warfare. And it is a reminder of all the armies and navies uh, that exist in the world today with all their modern weaponry and their ability to effect destruction. They pale in insignificance to the coming of Messiah to rescue his people. Uh, verse 4, the day of vengeance was in my heart. He's now going to come take revenge. One of the reasons you are counseled and commanded as a Christian not to take revenge is because that office belongs to Christ. Uh, and that's what he will do. In the interim time, we wait. We wait faithfully uh, for him to come. Confirmation from this comes from the Apostle John uh, and his allusion to this text uh, in uh, the book of the Revelation. Uh, it's mentioned a couple of times. Uh, turn in your New Testament to Revelation chapter 14, uh, verses 19 to 20. Uh, here John is alluding to Isaiah 63. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. The context, of course, is a warning of judgment upon Babylon. In John's day, this was a reference to Rome. In our day, it's a reference to the entire world system that's opposed to God. The phrase outside the city is a marker for us to the majesty of the gospel. 
It's a reference to Zion, or more properly, it's citizens. In other words, the judgment will not fall upon the citizens of the city of Zion. They escape the judgment. It's a powerful reminder to believe in Christ and set your hope and dreams upon him for salvation in all of eternity. The hyperbole of blood up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles details the extent of the violence of the coming of Messiah. Because it's a figure of speech, it doesn't literally occur that way, but it is a reminder of uh, the violence of uh, the warfare that Christ will affect. In other words, it's total, it's complete, and it's absolute. Uh, second allusion to Isaiah 63 is, again, uh, Revelation chapter 19. Uh, the context is the coming of the messianic warrior of Isaiah 59. And he comes to wage war. And John identifies him as Christ. Uh, let's read Revelation 19 in verses 13 to 15. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. He's alluding to Isaiah 63, fulfilled in the coming of Christ. What's instructive about this is that Isaiah predicts it. And John has the realization fulfilled in Christ. Fulfilled in Christ. The imagery, again, is one of incredible ferocity. Uh, contextually, there's an expansion beyond Babylon to the, to the beast and the false prophet. Uh, the former is the dragon, the latter false religion that support and energize the world system. But again, they will be destroyed too. None will escape. None, none will escape. None can escape. Famous words that I used to love hearing from Paul Harvey, you can run, but hide you can't. The word of God that comes out of the mouth of Messiah uh, speaks to his righteous accusations. He brings them all down. And then birds of carrion will come and be filled with their flesh. Uh, reminder of the ferocity, the violence of the coming of Christ. Illustration, by the way, that we need to be serious about these events because they will occur. Isaiah predicts them, Messiah will fulfill them, and yet we sometimes lose our way in life, don't we? We forget that uh, in the end God will judge. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, a single application in our own culture. Uh, we, we oftentimes uh, uh, know Christians who will retreat from the church and uh, say, well, I'm into Christ, but not his body. I'm not into the church, uh, but I'm, I have a spiritual connection to Jesus Christ, but just not the church. Well, I simply remind you again of the coming of Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the head of the body. What is the body? It's the church. How can you be into the head, but not the body? How can you make that dichotomy? How can you have a divided loyalty to the head, but not the body? I mean, the Apostle Paul uses this imagery, don't we care for the entire body? And the body of Christ is the church. Uh, the importance of being faithful to the Word of God, of being loyal to Christ, expressed in being loyal to the church. The church imperfect, but Christ perfect. 
but nonetheless, in the perfections of Christ, he will at his coming perfect his church. Uh, in our text, it's very interesting uh, that Christ acts alone. Uh, John says we follow with him, uh, but he prosecutes the battle alone. In Isaiah 63, 5, we read, there was no one to help and no one to uphold him. That Messiah need no, needs no help or support, and he's only one qualified to affect this incredibly ferocious, total, absolute, unconditional destruction of all of his enemies. And that he is the solitary victor in the violence and fury of revenge, and again, resistance is futile. It's not a pretty picture. I mean, no one brags upon them on this, but the scriptures clearly proclaim it. It's the word of God, what the future holds for those who are the enemies of Christ who have not believed upon him or been faithful to him, who have played him false. The other imagery here uh, that speaks so well to our own culture and substance abuse that we uh, seem to be uh, struggling with in our culture is uh, uh, that of drunkenness, Isaiah 63, 6. And I trod down the people in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. It's a mixed metaphor. Uh, in the first they are crushed, and now they drink the finished product of wrath. Uh, as with the winepress imagery, uh, the Apostle John also alludes to this text. Uh, let's go back to the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 14. Again, uh, the Apostle John is using the prophecy of Isaiah and applying it to Jesus Christ, reminding us he is Messiah. He is coming again. And this is what will happen to his enemies. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and the image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Notice the description of the wine, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Previous uh, context in verse 8 is uh, they've been drinking the wine of the passions of Babylon. Uh, now they are drunk, incapacitated, pardon me, and totally inebriated on what? The wrath of the Lamb of God. You know, more and more you go into stores and they're selling different types of uh, alcoholic beverages, different brands upon them, uh, different names. I mean, I, I understand that. Uh, different advertisements about uh, what happens to your life when you uh, so partake. Uh, I've never seen a bottle entitled The Wrath of the Lamb of God. But here it is. And men and women and even boys and girls will drink it full strength, totally undiluted uh, in the ferocity of the coming of the Savior. The wine is full strength and the effect is permanent. There's no recovery. No recovery. Uh, the inebriation and the wrath of God is permanent and eternal. Uh, no escape. You know, by way of application, so important uh, 
in the context, uh, Revelation 14.4, uh, those who follow follow the Lamb. Notice the phrase in Revelation 44. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The words of uh, John's Gospel, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. What do the people of God do? Well, they do many things. But John tells us they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It's not a pick and choose deal. It's not a cafeteria. As the sons of God, we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Because He is our shepherd. Uh, and one of the reasons we follow Him with loyalty and affection is because He drank the cup of judgment for us. Totally, fully, undiluted in all of its wrath. So that we could drink the cup of joy and celebration. Uh, again, uh, this... This concept of drinking and becoming inebriated on wrath to me is staggering in ferocity. It's very interesting when you study contemporary theology and American church history, different church traditions, this language of Isaiah 63 and its use in the book of the Revelation is so ferocious, Christians, theologians recoil from it. They cannot get over the ferocity of it. I understand that. It's very difficult to, to look at the ferocity of this imagery of, of a wine press and then uh, getting drunk on wrath. I mean, you almost kind of read it, you recoil from it. You know, Say it's not so. Say it not in Gath. Tell it not in Ashkelon. There is no wrath. We'll all, we'll all make it into the heavenly city. But John tells us otherwise, doesn't he? One of the reasons I think the Catholic Church uh, believes in purgatory uh, because the concept of eternity in hell is so difficult to get your hands around that you come up with an intermediate stage. Well, uh, we've got to suffer some more, so we'll spend a few thousand years in purgatory. And if our brothers and sisters on the earth will uh, write a few checks in our name and say a few this and a few of that, uh, maybe it'll shorten our time by 10 or 15 or 20 years, but eventually we'll get out of purgatory. I get that. I understand that. The concept of total undiluted ferocity of the wrath of God is so difficult that we come up with different ways to explain it. I just happen to reject that because I don't find it in the Scriptures. John tells us otherwise. But even the evangelical theologians struggle with this. There are many, uh, some Christian theologians that simply cannot handle this language. So uh, they believe when Christ comes again, he will annihilate his enemies, uh, and that's the end of it. There is no eternal wrath or just annihilationism. Well, but I understand that. I get that. It's so difficult to struggle with the ferocity here. Uh, just come up with a, a solution that's not quite so hard. I mean... Put some velvet on the steel hand of the judgment of God. The problem is, the Apostle John puts no velvet on it whatsoever. He describes it in ferocious language, undiluted, final, eternal, forever. So, I reject annihilationism. I understand how they get there, but we have to follow the Lamb wherever He goes and follow His Word. And His Word says, 
he who believes not upon the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him present and throughout eternity. Compelling reason to believe the gospel. It's not meant to scare us, it's just simply the future reality that awaits all those who reject the Savior, who say no to God. God, you have your way and I have my way. I don't like your way, I like my way. I'm going to try mine. This is how it ends. Ferocity of judgment. There is, of course, as there always is, and we turn from present and future judgment to the grace of God. Grace in our text, Isaiah 63 and verse 4. My year of redemption has come. The word here, redemption, is that of the language of the kinsman redeemer. Uh, ancient Israel, uh, if you got into debt, you could sell yourself into slavery. But your kinsman had a duty and obligation to come and rescue you. If you uh, put your land in hop, you could never sell your land. It was perpetually your land. But if you ran into difficult financial times, you could rent it out to someone. You could never sell it. Uh, but you could rent it, but again, your kinsman redeemer at some point was obligated to come and, uh, and to redeem your land and get it back for you. And of course, then there's the majestic promise of the year of Jubilee when all slaves were set free and all land was returned to the original owner. You know what that's a picture of? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Freedom from judgment and all of the majesty of the sons of God and the inheritance that awaits us. The land promises to me are about pictures of eternity and uh, we've been set free slavery uh, to the sons of God uh, and so the messianic warrior Isaiah 59 uh, comes uh, but he comes to rescue us to redeem us he is our redeemer and by the way he's the only redeemer uh, shorter catechism who is the redeemer of God's elect the answer the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the great messianic warrior uh, who comes uh, to reclaim his people and uh, to vindicate them. And so we read everywhere in the scriptures of the majesty of this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 uh, in verse 10. Uh, and to wait for his son. You might say to yourself, well, okay, so I understand Isaiah 63 and I understand John I uh, understand what's going to happen and who is going to affect it. What should I do in the interim? Uh, Paul says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh, that's what he does for his people. Uh, wait faithfully for the coming of the Savior. Uh, chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another uh, with these words. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lamb and from the glory of his power. But that glory of his power comes for us. The glory of his power comes to rescue us. But for us this morning, it's a wonderful reminder that all of the ferocity of this violence of the coming of Messiah comes to us and that he faced it for us. The fury of the wrath and anger of God vented against the Son upon the cross. 
The ferocity of all of modern warfare has no comparison to the ferocity of the majesty of the righteousness of God being vented against the Son of God upon the cross and being spent so that we might be forgiven. That he totally pays the price for us in the agony of the cross and the ferocity, the wrath, and anger that descends from heaven upon the Son upon the cross. Why are we Christians? Because of that event. Because he paid the price for us. And he paid it in full. And he canceled the certificate of debt.